Hello and welcome to another episode of Interregnum with Richard Seymour. I spoke to Richard about his recent blog post on the so-called lockdown sceptics, and in particular the work of Toby Green and his book The Covid Consensus, The Global Assault on Democracy and the Poor, A Critique from the Left. We talked about the straw man arguments, factual inaccuracies and conspiratorial thinking that characterise the book and the lockdown sceptic literature more generally. We also talked about why parts of the left have been receptive to some of this work and also what to make of the alliance between some self-styled anti-woke leftists and religious conservatives. Today's episode is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, who have lots of great left-wing titles perfect for PTO listeners. One you might like to check out is Fighting in a World on Fire, The Next Generation's Guide to Protecting the Climate and Saving Our Future by Andreas Malm. Young people are inheriting a world of climate catastrophe. Young people are also one of the strongest forces leading movements for climate justice. What kinds of drastic steps are needed to bring a stop to climate destruction? Why does our society consider profit for oil companies more important than the future of young people? Answers to these urgent questions are explored in Fighting in a World on Fire, The Next Generation's Guide to Protecting the Climate and Saving Our Future, a new book for young people, adapted from Andreas Malm's best-selling book, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. Fighting in a World on Fire is out now from Verso Books and part of their February Verso Book Club reading. And now to today's interview. Richard Seymour is an editor at Salvage Journal and the author of many books including Unhitched, The Trial of Christopher Hitchens, The Liberal Defense of Murder, Corbyn, The Strange Rebirth of Radical Politics, and most recently, The Disenchanted Earth, Reflections on Eco-Socialism and Barbarism. So Richard, you recently wrote a blog post titled Did the Lockdowns Work? in which you look at the so-called lockdown sceptic literature, and in particular the work of Toby Green in his book The Covid Consensus. An updated and revised version of that book, published last month, is styled as a critique of the Covid response from the left, and that new version is co-authored with Thomas Fatsy, a columnist at Compact Magazine, the rather strange new American publication that unites religious conservatives with some, you know, sort of anti-woke swaddies on leftists. Now, the thesis of Green and Fatsy's work is that the lockdowns through infringements on personal freedoms, detrimental effects on mental and physical health, economic harm, and the fostering of the alleged persecution of an oppressed minority, in this case, those who were resistant to the lockdowns and the vaccines, have caused more harm than good. And in their words, in a recent interview, the COVID response comprised no less than a spiritual and moral crisis on the left and more broadly. Now, of course, the initial response to the pandemic was unsurprisingly chaotic, contradictory, and was clearly affected by the initial lack of knowledge about the nature of the virus, which, as you point out, was initially believed not to be airborne, and some medical professionals in the West insisted in the early stages that mask wearing was ineffective, very much contrary to the view of their colleagues in East Asia at the time. But looking back and bearing in mind the uncertainties of the data, what plausibly would have happened had the lockdowns not been implemented in the UK and, and elsewhere? Yeah, well, a lot depends on the existing health infrastructure. So if there was a good test, trace and isolation system, and it was activated early, then maybe the effects would have been quite limited. I mean, that's what we initially saw in, for example, the Indian state of Kerala, um, a state typically led by the Communist Party with a reasonable welfare system. 
But we're talking about the UK, which is a much more backward state. You know, as a, they they used to talk about banana republics. The UK is what you might call a cabbage monarchy, a sort of really dysfunctional state. In the name of efficiency and streamlining uh, the health service, you know, like all the other public services, has been subject to this new public management. The NHS has been driven into the red, but by a decade of deliberate underfunding, it was hemorrhaging staff uh, due to the pay freeze already. And what preparedness, pandemic preparedness, had been implemented under New Labour was cut. And then on top of that, you have a government's wrapped up in its own uh, nationalist drama, trying to keep the Brexit files late, really not wanting to be distracted by COVID-19. So they didn't take it seriously enough to even begin the work of implementing a test and trace system. And if you look how long it took, even when they had bought time with the lockdown to get that going, you can see that wasn't really an option. Then there's the question of hospitalization. So the UK had about 141,000 hospital beds in the year 2019 to 20, uh, 92% occupancy rate on a regular basis. So the health service was not prepared to cope with a sudden surge of hospitalizations. Then March 2020, uh, the reproduction number for COVID-19, this was the, the really striking thing about it. The reproduction number is very high. It was estimated uh, in the UK to be 2.4 by Imperial College, uh, the Ferguson-led team that's so controversial. We can come back to that if you like. Um, but 2.4 is very high. For seasonal flu, it's about 1.5. So with the infection fatality ratio up to 20 times higher than that for seasonal flu, there are various estimates here. But according to the FT's data, it was up to 20 times higher. It depends on what time you're looking that would result in hundreds of thousands of deaths to get us to herd immunity if we didn't use any non-pharmaceutical interventions. Um, and certainly if we didn't use lockdown, um, we'll come back to why that's so important. Parenthetically, the COVID skeptics generally rely on the lowest possible estimate of infection fatality ratio for COVID, which comes from a paper by John Ioannidis, which found it to be at 0.23%. For COVID, which is still higher than for seasonal flu, but doesn't actually fall within the mainstream of estimates. Mm, yeah, it doesn't sound so dramatic. No, indeed. But, uh, you know, th they're ignoring the broad range of estimates going up to, um, I think, 1.15% or something like that. So that was the overt reasoning of the government's SAGE unit before they adopted lockdown. Basically, it's going to cost uh, hundreds of thousands of deaths, but that's, you know, uh, you know, it's worth taking that on the chin. Then, to come back to hospitalizations, I don't know what the general pattern is. My guess is that, like mortality, um, the hospitalization ratio varies depending on the age structure of the population and other variables. But, for example, there's one study in Connecticut looked into this and found an infection hospitalization ratio of 6.86%, which would tend to come in waves, meaning that for a lot of the time it wasn't too bad. But sometimes it would be much higher than 6.86%. Um, in other words, you would run the risk of the demand for hospital beds and ventilating units, most importantly, being overwhelming. Another way to study this is to find out what effect the delay in locking down had on mortality rates in the UK. And I saw that there were early figures indicating that 20,000 lives or so could have been saved. And that's recently confirmed by a study published in PLOS One. And then finally, there's one other way to ask and answer this question. Could the UK have achieved most of the effects of lockdown, that is compulsory non-pharmaceutical interventions like limiting mobility, stay-at-home orders, shutting down commerce, uh, limiting mass gatherings, that kind of thing, with voluntary measures 
targeted shielding and just good advice. Now, I've gone through as many studies and meta-studies as I could find on this. Um, I'm sure I'd missed some. And while the estimates of the effect of specifically lockdown measures varies, there is no doubt that it makes a substantial difference to the outcomes in terms of illnesses, hospitalizations, and mass deaths. And that just is what you would expect. Common sense would tell you that because the virus spreads through social mixing. And if all signals coming from authority are telling you that mixing isn't serious enough to legally control it, then you would have had a lot more mixing. So short answer, mass infections and hospitalizations, overwhelmed NHS, mass death, even worse than what we actually saw, which is pretty bad. And to me, uh, I think you need to have impressive counter arguments concerning the trade-offs involved in lockdown to make that a viable choice. One move that writers from the lockdown sceptic quarter often make is to conflate left support for non-medical interventions with blanket support for the lockdowns as they were actually implemented and to ignore the fact that many on the left were in support of lockdowns in principle. But a lot of critical things to say about the way the lockdowns were actually implemented, uh, particularly the lack of economic and other support that was provided. Could you perhaps remind us what the more constructive parts of the left were actually saying about the lockdowns at the time? Sure. I mean, look, I mean, no one actually wanted lockdown and where lockdowns were needed, it was regarded as a tragic necessity. Evidence of prior policy failure. This was a formulation I came across a lot. South Korea's epidemic control program and its use of testing and tracing and limited quarantine was actually a highly respected example. I didn't see anyone on the left uh, disparaging that. It was just not one that the UK was in a position to follow. That's the first thing. Second, it's clear that uh, just as the costs of not locking down will fall hardest on those suffering pre-existing health conditions like racism and poverty, so the negative effects of lockdown would actually be unevenly distributed and you know would particularly affect the poor and anyone who sees the wrong end of a police baton and anyone suffering a mental health problems. And also, you know, augmenting the repressive capacities of the state potentially beyond COVID, so there would need to be vigilance on all of this. Another thing is support for restrictions on uh, movement was highly conditional, and you'll notice how it was suspended immediately in the case of protests supporting Black Lives Matter, protests over the murder of Sarah Everard. In fact, as I recall, the left was highly critical when the cops used the exclusive lockdown measures to attack even a street party in Brixton. However, you know, ethically questionable it is to actually have a fucking street party in the middle of a deadly pandemic. Violently policing it is not the answer. And uh, then when the cops attacked the vigil for Sarah Everard, um, there were several protests for BLM uh, against the government's authoritarian anti-protest legislation. I attended one of them. Um, this was, uh, you know, the, this authoritarian legislation was actually separate from COVID laws. Uh, but it's worth pointing that out for those who think that COVID is the pretext for all the authoritarianism. Um, all that's happening in the middle of the pandemic. So really far from the left lining up behind state overreach and authoritarian policing, I have never seen such a consensus on the left that policing and authoritarian policy needs at the very least to be substantially rolled back and radically reformed. And that continues. And then finally, obviously support for economic interventions to protect household incomes, um, to put capital into deep freeze for the duration of lockdown. That was highly critical. I mean, everybody noted the lack of provision for the poorest, for renters, the total lack of proper support for key workers, the absence of any serious initiative to make workplaces safe. And then there's the schools, you know. Um, I don't think anybody was particularly happy about the idea of schools being closed down, knowing the effects that that would have on uh, child development, socialization, and so on. But 
they weren't investing in school buildings. They weren't exp- investing in the expanded capacity of, you know, uh, with proper ventilation. Um, and, you know, that would have taken time to do anyway. And there was a real danger there. And the danger wasn't so much to the children, though it was to some extent, we underestimate this sometimes, but actually that it would be passed around uh, among teachers and adult staff, and then that would be passed uh, on in the population and cause a lot more death. So, I mean, there was always an argument that this is about trade-offs. I know that there are uh, undoubtedly some ideological types, if you like, who wouldn't like to uh, acknowledge uh, such complexities, but that's not what I saw. Do you think, though, that nonetheless, the charge that parts of the left were insufficiently critical of aspects of the governmental and, and public health response has some basis? I mean, I can, I can certainly think of many examples from social media of people being extremely condemnatory, sometimes without proper justification of the perceived failings of others to heed the lockdown measures, although it wasn't always clear that this was something so common on the left or whether it was more true of middle class liberals, who I think it's maybe not unfair to say are in some cases a bit given to castigating ordinary people. Um, you know, there were some pretty harsh comments flying around and, and a feeling that a bit of coercion was maybe good for people. You know, uh, I have no problem with coercion in some circumstances, but, uh, you know, in my experience, that applies more to the trust the science liberals uh, than to the radical left. I'm not saying that there aren't examples of this, but I even remember Owen Jones, who sometimes unfairly criticized for the way that he tries to sort of uh, communicate with the mainstream. He made a program about the dangers of lockdown, the need for a discriminating analysis, interviewing a lot of the anti-lockdown protesters. And if anything, I think the radical left tended to criticize the government for acting too late, for the corruption and nepotism of its interventions, you know, for the inadequacy of the safety net for the poor, failing to develop test trace and isolate properly, all that stuff. There were certainly parts of the radical left that went hard for a zero COVID response based on a more stringent lockdown along the lines recommended by Neil Ferguson and his team at Imperial College. And I think that probably became less and less plausible as time went on. And uh, I would say that it became an ideological shibboleth, but it was based on a truth uh, initially. I do think I concede that there wasn't perhaps enough attention to the negatives of lockdowns at first, but then that's how political interventions tend to work. You know, to use an old idiom, you bend the stick, emphasizing that which is most important. And in the early phases, it was most important for any plausible social justice perspective to control the infections, the hospitalizations and the mortalities. I I can't see any way around that. Going back to your point about the way some of the lockdown sceptics point to COVID as a pretext for bringing in new authoritarian measures, and, and you rightly point out that those measures already existed and it's more that they were taken advantage of and used and, and sometimes very much misused. But also part of the critique of those people would be to say, well, COVID presents a, a new precedent. It will put jet boosters under state authoritarianism and will allow for measures taken in this emergency situation to become uh, generalised and, uh, and used for very uh, nefarious purposes. Yeah, that was always a danger. But frankly, I haven't seen much sign of it except in situations where there was already a practical state of emergency happening. So, for example, India's laws 
very strongly resemble the state of emergency. They're extremely repressive. I think um, I'm not very impressed by the over-dramatization of the repression in London, you know, with the few arrests and what have you, compared to what happened in places like the Philippines. You know, but the you know the the laws that were used in India, for example, were colonial era laws and really had more to do with controlling the population. And then there were there were laws to uh, suppress media, control media reporting. But that's based on the fact that the Hinduva movement has already taken effective control of the state and colonized it and colonized most of the state apparatuses and the universities and uh, has has embarked upon this fascistic program of ethnic violence and uh, imperialist expansion in Kashmir. And similarly, in uh, the Philippines, you had an extremely repressive lockdown situation, but that's in part because the uh, Duterte government and the death squads around him had already begun uh, ratcheting up uh, death squad terror. I think that COVID punctuated some of this, but it had a far more complicated relationship to the balance between popular sovereignty and state sovereignty, between authority and rights, uh, than people acknowledge. Because one of the things that COVID actually produced was one of the biggest uprisings for black lives the the world has ever seen, and the biggest protest movement in American history. Uh, So these things are not straightforward. Going back to the beginning of the lockdowns, so we know, of course, that initially, in many cases, the lockdowns were not immediately driven solely by state action, but rather that many people started social distancing and spending more time at home before the imposition of the actual lockdowns. How do Green and Fancy and other lockdown sceptics deal with that fact, which would seem to contradict the idea of lockdowns as purely phenomena of state authoritarianism? Oh, I would say, uh, I think they would say that as uh, as many of the lockdown skeptic studies produced by economists and so on tend to say this, that it proves that voluntary action was far more efficacious at controlling the disease than the compulsory non-pharmaceutical interventions, and that it shows that the Swedish model, with a combination of advice shielding and limited NPIs, non-pharmaceutical interventions, could have staved off the worst while avoiding the demerits of lockdown. That's Green's argument, or a version of it. Um, it just isn't very persuasive in light of all the known evidence. Uh, as far as I can tell, Sweden's death rate is certainly higher than societies with a comparable political economy and demographic structure, and it didn't avoid a severe economic downturn. And I really think that the the fact that you've got a right to go and visit a coffee shop or have a drink in a pub uh, isn't a good reason to tolerate that level of death. You mentioned in your blog post that the lockdown sceptics sometimes conflate lockdowns with all other non-pharmaceutical interventions such as track and trace, uh, mask wearing and social distancing, short of actual stay-at-home lockdown orders. Uh, why do they make this move? Because it muddies the waters, you know. I mentioned um, in the piece I wrote a notorious meta-study by anti-lockdown economists. Uh, this one's led by Steve Hank of the right-wing Cato Institute, which does exactly this step of uh, conflating different non-pharmaceutical interventions, while also ignoring the temporal element in lockdown policies, the fact that it takes some weeks for lockdowns to have a noticeable effect on infections, then further weeks for it to filter through in hospitalizations, then further weeks before we get an effect on mortality. So the point of lockdown uh, non-pharmaceutical interventions is, uh, you know, like closing a commercial business or telling people to stay at home, is to drastically reduce the rate of transmission. Other interventions like mask mandates, they are likely to be continued outside of lockdown periods when infections are no longer at their peak. 
their effect will be necessarily reduced, though not negligible, compared to lockdown, for example, or compared to the vaccine. That way of blurring the conceptual boundaries muddies the water, allowing them to find a much smaller effect from lockdowns, that which can then be eliminated by other dubious statistical maneuvers. I mean, that's essentially what I think is going on there. So on Green's book specifically, The COVID Consensus, you write that, when I read the lockdown sceptic literature, I can't suppress indignation at being treated like an idiot by people who are also treating themselves like idiots. Because what do they take me for? Who do they think is going to be persuaded by that specious reasoning? And do they just assume that I won't check their sources? Do they even check their own sources? Um, Could you describe some of the factual inaccuracies that you found in the book? Yeah, sure. I mean, look, I went through this book with the same growing sense of exasperation that I used to get when I read, you know, 9-11 conspiracy literature and would then check their footnotes. Some of the inaccuracies are by omission or by just completely misunderstanding the data and mangling categories. So the first thing I noticed, uh, and I'm I'm working with Green's version of the book before he works with Fatsy. So this is yes, yeah, uh, from, this is the original version, right, from the one published in 2021. So no doubt it'll have a lot more in it. But uh, the first thing I noticed was it was doing everything possible to minimize the infection fatality ratio for COVID, but it scarcely mentioned the reproduction number. And that's grossly misleading. I mean, you can't talk about, you can't say, oh, uh, the WHO overstated the mortality caused by it by talking about a very high case fatality ratio without mentioning the very high reproduction number. And it's particularly problematic when you compare it with seasonal flu, as uh, Green does in the book. At one point, he asserts that seasonal flu caused over 50,000 excess deaths in the UK in the winter of 2017-2018. And, uh, you know, he makes the rhetorical point, nobody recommended lockdown then. Now, apart from the fact that the figure that he's citing is for all excess deaths that winter... Uh, ascribed to a mix of cold, vaccine failure, stresses on the NHS, and the virulence of that particular flu strain. He doesn't mention the reproduction number for COVID in this context, which kills the analogy stone dead. Another thing I noticed uh, is that he ascribed all the negative economic effects of COVID-19 to lockdown, ignoring the relevance of how public interventions were designed, and the prior institutional framework and the political economy in terms of how these effects were felt. So at the same time, he's ignoring the preponderance of uh, scientific data showing the beneficial effects of lockdown interventions in saving lives, or doing his best to minimize it. Third, he refers approvingly to recommendations made by the great Barrington Declaration scientists without telling us that this declaration was sponsored by the right-wing American Institute for Economic Research, an outfit that also specializes in climate denial, without clarifying that most of its signatories were not actually scientists and that the majority of public health scientists rejected it. And in fact, he doesn't mention that the AIER is behind many of the tendentious studies that he approvingly cites. Take another example, he would frequently claim that the COVID death rate was being inflated, pointing out that the majority of those who died had some premorbidity in various studies or various situations. Premorbidity in this case being essentially the same thing as a comorbidity, another damaging health condition. Without mentioning or attempting to account for the role of comorbidities in intensifying the, the lethality of COVID, in other words, they're not an alternative explanation for someone dying. They're part of the reason why COVID was so lethal in this case. 
he actually mentions the role of comorbidities on the following page without appearing to understand what he actually means or what they mean. And then, having previously insisted uh, on distinguishing between case fatality ratio, which is the figure used by an early WHO announcement, and infection fatality ratio, which will generally show a lower mortality rate than the CFR, because essentially there are far more people who are infected than are registered as cases. He completes the two when he recites uh, Sunetra Gupta's research, suggesting that her figure for the infection fatality ratio was much lower than the 3.4% figure given by the WHO. The 3.4% figure given by the head of the WHO was actually for case fatality ratio. I know this is very tricky and uh, complicated to, to explain, but it's, it's actually quite basic. He's just mangling two c- categories that he's earlier told us are quite distinct. Uh, other inaccuracies took the form of pretty wildly incautious assertions. Uh, so, for example, in order to downplay COVID, he suggested that the 1957-58 Asian flu pandemic may have killed more than COVID in absolute terms, which is just not true. The upper estimate of deaths during the two years of Asian flu was 4 million. The lower estimate was 1 million. In that time, the COVID pandemic had already hit over 6 million deaths, and that's likely to be a significant underestimate. In fact, even in 2020, the World Health Organization estimated that the real excess death toll from COVID-19 was about 3 million. So the whole thrust of this literature is to talk down the COVID death rate, but it relies upon you not really knowing very much of the background, not checking their sources. Uh, For what it's worth, a frequent source for uh, Toby Green is the Daily Mail. The majority of his sources are newspaper reports where, in fact, he has the option of going and checking the original study that he's referring to. Um, And as a result, you get a, a quite misleading and skewed representation of what it actually says. I could go on. I, I'm just, I, he's not a serious commentator. I'm appalled by people, some of whom I respect, who have been taken in by what is, for any historian, unprofessional hack work. Why do you think people have been taken in by it? Why do you think there is some sympathy for this perspective on the left at the moment? And, and do you think it's a perspective that's gaining ground? Yeah, I mean, I, I, th- I think we can come back to this and sort of develop it in more detail. But one point that occurs to me is that First of all, there are obviously uh, drawbacks of lockdowns. There is a sense in which some people probably feel resentful over the fact that they got bounced into supporting something out of fear um, and momentary panic and maybe uh, started to reassess their position. There's also a sense that I think there's a large part of the left that shares the alt style of reasoning. And I think that's really crucial here. And maybe we can talk about this uh, a bit more. But um, the the old style of reasoning, essentially based upon not so much um, adherence to underlying socialist positions, but critique of the official narrative, which actually has a kind of thrilling jouissance associated with it. It's a bit like the 9-11 truth stuff. If you can prove that they're lying to us, and that the official narrative doesn't make sense, then it opens up a huge range of uh, uh, dazzling possibilities. And it puts you in the position of being a dissident, which is much more glamorous, frankly, than being, you know, a socialist um, and trying to do the patient work of building social movements and all the rest of it. 
I think there's a glamour in this sort of position. Um, Do you think there's a tendency to, I, I mean, I was going to ask you actually about a recent interview that Green and Fancy gave in which they make reference to the importance of the World Economic Forum and the global plans they describe as being made there. And, and do you think that that's why these supranational institutions feature so heavily in the literature? Because there is this uh, conspiratorial quality. Yeah, the, there's a conspiratorial quality in as much as, I mean, look, I remember Michael Parenti, um, sort of Marxist writer, making a joke about being a coincidence theorist. And he said, people mock you and ask you if you think, well, the rich are all going to meet in a room somewhere. And he said, well, where the hell else are they going to meet? Of course, they're, they're going to meet in a room, not the fairground. So what? But, you know, rich people and state officials meeting doesn't by itself tell you very much. I mean, it's also a statement of fact, for example, that politicians and rich people meet at Bohemian Grove. And it's a question of what kind of significance you ascribe to that. It's a question of whether, in fact, these efforts of networking, jockeying for positioning, lobbying, competing, coordinating some agendas here and there, all that stuff that's going on, as well as just uh, recreation and entertainment. Are you going to let that stuff do your cognitive mapping for you? Do these meetings represent for you how global capitalism works? Because if they do, that's where it becomes a conspiracy theory. That's where magical thinking, or to be precise, fetishistic thinking, is substituting for concrete investigation. Now, given the other remarks of Green and Fatsy, which I know we're going to come to, I think it's very clear that they are going down this path. I think that there's um, a strong temptation to do that, but I think preeminently that's a question of organisation or the lack thereof. On that interview and some of the other comments they make there, one section that particularly stood out to me was where they say, several statesmen, political leaders and commentators openly accuse the unvaccinated of being threats to society, if not outright murderers, criminals who deserve to be excluded from public life. And they go on to claim that the treatment of the unvaccinated was, as they put it, utterly unprecedented. This was the first time since the experience of 20th century fascisms that a minority had been subjected to this kind of institutionally promoted stigma and discrimination. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's certainly a bold claim. What do you make of it? It's a really disgusting claim, and the tendentious analogy with fascism, which is de rigueur for the COVID sceptics, you know, uh, remembering Andrew Bridgen's invocations of the Holocaust. And I don't know if you remember, there was a COVID sceptic rally in London back in July 2021, where uh, one of the major speakers called for the hanging of doctors and nurses along the lines of Nuremberg. And of course, there's the White Rose Society trying to position the COVID skeptic position as a tantamount to resistance to Nazism. Um, I mean, it's, I think this really tells on them. So let's go through it. In this quote that you've just mentioned, they, they say that there were appeals to exclude the unvaccinated from the NHS, in some cases, not to allow them to leave their homes and even to let them die. Okay, there were appeals. This is an interesting use of the passive voice. I don't always think it's illegitimate, but there's a question. Was anyone who didn't get vaccinated actually allowed to die for disobedience? No. Was anyone who didn't get vaccinated excluded from the NHS? No. Was anyone who didn't get vaccinated prevented from leaving their home? No. Was any of this ever a serious option? No. Those who didn't get vaccinated were not allowed to die. Rather, in many cases, especially in the United States, they died from a disease that the vaccine could have made non-lethal for them. What's more, 
because a critical mass of people in the US refused the vaccine. They helped prevent the achievement of herd immunity and accelerated the spread of the disease, resulting in many other people dying. Now, I don't doubt that there is an element of moral panic bubbling up around the vaccine because there always are elements of moral panic bubbling up around everything. One day it's overweight people burdening the NHS. Next day it's smokers. Next day it's trans people in women's prisons. The idea that the inconvenience of vaccine passports, even the coercion of vaccine mandates, is remotely comparable with the experience of institutional stigma and discrimination under fascism is not even worthy of serious consideration. You have to be wildly insensitive to the history that you're referring to and oblivious of the realities of day-to-day life just to make such claims. And that's really only the obvious point. It also reflects, frankly, on this apocalyptic jouissance on the part of reaction, for that's what we're talking about here. There's nothing left-wing about this, which we see in the followers of QAnon, Trump, and Quedenkin, and the 5G conspiracies, and the COVID so-called skeptics, wherein the genuinely frightening celerity of capitalism's creative destruction, and the concentration of economic power, and the authoritarian drift of national states, all of this together is misrecognized as a great culmination, the end of days, the opportunity for a rapture. And I detect, frankly, that sort of salivating prophetic desire among the COVID skeptics. Elsewhere in the interview, they say that what has been so laughable in the mainstream response is the idea that this has just been a crisis in public health. This has also clearly been a spiritual and moral crisis. When people seem to think it's kind to isolate old people in care homes so that they die alone, or say goodbye to their loved ones on FaceTime, to stop kids in the Philippines from leaving home for 17 months, or to prevent religious worship abetted by religious institutions, then you clearly have a moral and spiritual crisis. Um, Now, you know, I I confess that I don't recall anyone suggesting that there was anything uh, kind about preventing family members from saying goodbye to loved ones uh, in person. What I recall is that most people understood that some pretty awful things were going to have to be endured, in order to reduce the number of COVID infections and, and deaths, not that anyone actually relished these, uh, these measures. But maybe I've misremembered. Uh, what's your recollection, Richard? I uh, remember pretty much what you just described. I mean, let me just point out that in his book, Toby Green tells us that the average age of death for COVID-19 was higher than the average life expectancy in the UK. And I think, if I recall correctly, he took this from the Daily Mail. That argument, which it isn't even implicit, is roughly as follows. Why shut society down to give elderly people a few more months of miserable life? Now, that claim was stupid. I mean, the Office for National Statistics tells us that the average age of death from COVID-19 is actually much lower than for flu or pneumonia. Um, But just think about what a spiritually and morally desolated, bleak and broken place you have to inhabit to make such an argument and they're right of course there's been a spiritual and moral crisis of course there has there's been millions and millions of deaths people have suffered horrible illnesses millions are still suffering from long-term sickness as a result of COVID-19 infection and yes they're right the lockdowns made us miserable I mean it catalyzed a long-term mental health pandemic that scarcely anyone was even looking at before. Uh, You've got the anomie of a society in which our rulers can kill 
roughly a million Iraqis and tell us to get over it, tell us that stuff happens, in which austerity kills hundreds of thousands and we're just told to move on, it's all over, in which uh, depression was already becoming the number one illness in the world, in which suicide was becoming the main cause of death among men under 45, and in which mass shootings and lone wolf murders were spreading like a fucking epidemic and in which these aspirational fascist parasites were thriving on the pus. All that tells us that there is, yes, a spiritual and moral crisis. This is late capitalism. It is a society based on hate. Its spiritual values are diabolical. You think we've got a spiritual and moral crisis because churches were shut down to help curb the number of elderly people dying miserable, suffocating, lonely deaths on a ventilator in a hospital away from their families. What do they know, these spiritual imbeciles? This is just window dressing for callous sociopathy dressed up in insurgent garb. So we've talked a lot about the lockdowns, but obviously another particular focus of this literature is the vaccines, uh, the vaccines themselves, vaccine mandates, vaccine passports and so on. Um, could you describe the positions they take on the vaccines and, and where you would disagree? Well, let me just start where I can agree with them. I think vaccine mandates are probably counterproductive. I, I don't think it's intrinsically oppressive. You know, um, the question is whether authority is justified, um, whether it's legitimate, but also whether it's going to be effective. If there's good evidence that a behavior is going to hurt or kill lots of people in a way that can be avoided, there's a prima facie ethical case for controlling that behavior, but that doesn't mean it's a good idea. So like, for example, you can ban alcohol, but you're not going to stop death from alcoholism. Um, and that doesn't really, you could say it's totally uh, disproportionate to the problem anyway. If you force people to take vaccines, you won't necessarily stop an anti-vax backlash. Indeed, you know, I wrote a little potted history of anti-vax movements, which was basically fueled by the number of people, working class people, I'm talking about the Victorian England, going to jail because they distrusted the vaccine. Um, what these guys say, they say, I mean, among other things, there's a question of whether these products can even be considered vaccines at all. As we know, as we now know, the vaccines don't produce immunity, meaning that they don't prevent infection and transmission. Now, I'm astonished at this claim, because that suggests they don't know what the terms vaccine and immunity actually mean in everyday language. Immunity is the state of being resistant to a particular pathogen. Now, no vaccine in history, as far as I know, has produced 100% resistance. It's built up resistance by, you know, stimulating the production of antibodies which reduces transmission, reduces the severity of infection, thereby reducing the likelihood of dying. And that's not a recondite matter. It's just one of the first things you'll find out if you look into it, even a quick Google search or a look in the dictionary. Historically, anti-vax movements have always used this fact that after vaccination, some people still get infected, some people may still die, to undermine the whole idea of vaccination. But that implies actually a really skewed apprehension of the concept of risk. Which brings me to something else. Um, I mean, the risk of vaccination is a common ideology. I mean, Fazi and Green don't scruple to say that the concerns about the mRNA technology were rational, that there were genuine concerns that as the COVID spike protein was introduced into people's bloodstreams, that it would result in a toxic accumulation in tissues and organs. And they say that this has been confirmed by several studies, which are then linked in this article. 
So the argument is that vaccine hesitancy is a result of paying good attention to the information, not disinformation. A few things to say about this. First of all, if you check the studies they link to, you get a rather different picture. What they refer to are actually two studies and one discussion piece summarizing existing research. The discussion piece is the only one that uses the word toxic, and it does so only in the context of it being possible that toxic amounts of the spike protein may accumulate, and saying that this it should be investigated. They don't produce any new data supporting this picture, so their use of tentative language is quite responsible. The two studies are equally tentative. One refers to elevated levels of free spike antigen being potentially an underlying cause of myocarditis in adolescents and young people who have been vaccinated. The other study refers to possible actions of the spike protein because, as they acknowledge, human data is not yet available on this and the potential for it to contribute to pulmonary hypertension. These are serious concerns and they're serious responsible studies looking at real risks, but they're quite cautious in what they conclude. And even if they weren't being so cautious, however, the claim made by Fatsi and Green and anti-vaxxers in general, um, it requires you to take a very strange notion of risk. So, for example, if you take an MMR vaccine, there is a one in a million chance that you will get encephalitis. That's the correlation. If you get measles, which the MMR vaccine is designed to prevent, the chances are one in a thousand. So the greater risk is not getting the vaccine. Commonly used vaccine adjuvants like aluminium, uh, they bring risks, and the risk is particularly heightened, uh, particularly in poor countries where the vaccine is diluted and they add in more of the aluminium to make it cheaper to sell. But the risks of not being vaccinated are still greater, and the anti-vaxxers talk as if there should be or could be a magical cure out there that produces 100% resistance to the pathogen with no side effects whatsoever, and only that would be immunity. And that if vaccines don't live up to this, then they're exposed. But there's no medicine that is not actually also a potential toxin, and vaccines have usually in practice been diluted versions of the disease. So smallpox vaccines made from infected tissues stripped from the skin of cows. The TB vaccine was taken from the pustules of infected people, later grown in laboratories. Uh, diphtheria vaccination uses a weakened version of the toxin. Tetanus vaccine does the same. Whooping cough vaccine literally uses the dead cells of the Bordetella pertussis bacteria. Basically, vaccination began with people making themselves and others ill, relatively mildly ill, in order to avoid a much greater illness, and always came with these medical risks. So, vaccine hesitancy no doubt can be rational. But vaccine hesitancy based on an exaggeration of those risks and a complete downplaying of the risks of the disease is not rational, as Fatsi and Green claim. It's actually quite deadly. And, and the sad thing is they've got every reason to know this. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month. And if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.